Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're at the halfway point in our study of the eight statements Jesus made right at the very beginning of the most famous sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. He made these statements of blessings, or as we've called them, beatitudes, to teach us something of the utmost importance, how we might live our lives in such a way with the right attitudes so that we can be those attitudes and be favored by God. The four beatitudes that we looked at last week dealt with our relationship to God, how we are to be poor in spirit, mournful of our sin, meek, hungering for righteousness before him. But now a transition takes place in the next four, and they deal with our relationship to each other. So what's our B attitude when justice says there's a penalty that must be paid for an action, but love, on the other hand, demands something different? Justice is getting precisely what we deserve. You do the crime, you do the time, no more, no less, and God, we're told, is a just God. But the Bible also says the Lord is compassionate and merciful. If justice is getting exactly what you deserve, mercy is exactly the opposite. It's not getting the punishment or retribution that you so deserve. A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a serious offense, twice in fact, and justice demanded his death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother said. I ask for mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, she said, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. And Napoleon heard her and said, I hear you and I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Mercy is to be our attitude in dealing with others because Jesus tells us blessed or favored by God are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Jesus is saying, you get what you give. It's the law of direct return. It's one of the great laws of the Bible. If you criticize other people, they're going to criticize you. If you're friendly to other people, they're going to be friendly to you. If you're merciful to other people, they will be merciful to you. You see, mercy carries with it the idea that something motivates it. It's more than just feeling sorry for people. It's doing something about it. Mercy is faithful love in action, no matter the circumstances. How do you know if you're showing mercy? Here are quickly four marks of mercy. You can evaluate yourself against them. Number one, if I'm merciful, I'll be patient. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. If you want to be merciful, you must learn to be patient. Patience is easy when someone you are with doesn't really require it, but of course that's not when patience is required, is it? Patience is required when people exasperate you, frustrate you, you don't see the way they do. We're told, be patient with everyone. Are you patient with everyone? You might take time to learn more about them, you might try and understand where they're coming from, and that might help you be more patient. Often behind peculiar behavior, there's behavior, there's loneliness or depression or hurt or anxiety or fear. The Bible says, if I'm merciful, I'll be patient with everyone. If I'm merciful too, I'll forgive. When people make mistakes, do you rub it in or do you rub it out? When people let you down, do you hold it over their head for the rest of their lives, never letting them off the hook? That's not mercy. Colossians says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. It's interesting about forgiveness that when you're called to receive it, it feels so right, doesn't it? But when you're called to give mercy, it doesn't feel so right. It kind of feels wrong. It's a lot easier to criticize than it is to apologize. 
It's a lot easier to criticize than it is to sympathize. It's a lot easier to point a finger than it is to lend a helping hand. Truth be told about us, when it comes to others' mistakes and wrongdoings, we really don't want to forgive them. We want justice for them. But when the shoe is on the other foot, when somebody wrongs us, or when we wrong somebody else, sorry, when we foul up, well, we hope there's all kinds of mercy and forgiveness in store for us. And thirdly, if I'm merciful, I will help. Proverbs 3.27 says, Wherever you possibly can, do good to those who need it. Mercy is practical assistance. There are people all around you who are hurting. When you do something about it, that's being like Jesus. It's when you take action that you're merciful. John put it like this. Let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show it by, the, by our actions. Fourthly, if I'm merciful, I'll do good to my enemies. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that, but love your enemies, do good to them, then your reward will be great. Be merciful just as your father is. If you want to be like God, easy, be merciful. Do good to those who do evil to you. That's exactly the opposite of what society says. Society says when people hurt you, hurt them back, get even. Gossip about them, try and take them down. God says, no, 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 no. Be an actor on the stage of life. Don't be a reactor on the stage. You not only forgive that person, be nice to them as well. How would it be if every time someone criticizes you, you compliment them back? Every time someone puts you down, you build them up. That's what being merciful is, returning good for evil. Here's the why. Because God has shown us mercy. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Well, that pretty much explains itself. When you think about those people who really test you, if you're having a hard time being merciful, remember, you've been a receiver of mercy from God. I think all the times I've gone my own way, done my own thing, jammed out on God, forget it, I'm going to do it this way, yet God still loves me. What a gracious, merciful God he is. And he continues to shower love and mercy on me. So keep reminding yourself, God, if you can be merciful to me, surely I can be merciful to them. We tend to judge other people by their worst faults, and we tend to judge ourselves by our best intentions. Be merciful. Because we need, and we probably still we need, mercy for ourselves. Not only has God been merciful to me in the past, I'm going to need it in the future. I don't expect to be perfect from now until the time that I die, so I'm going to need more mercy. Therefore, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you've been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. God does not give us what we deserve. Thank you. He gives us what we need, and that's mercy. And mercy is giving to others, and again, not what they deserve, but giving them what they need. And thirdly, because it makes us happy, blessed, happy are, favored by God are the merciful. The opposite of that is also true. Unhappy are the unmerciful. The most miserable people I know are the people who are resentful, who refuse to give up a grudge, who are holding some unforgiveness over somebody else's head. They don't realize they're hurting themselves. Proverbs says your kindness will reward you, but your cruelty will destroy you. Doing acts of mercy gets out of ourselves and gets the focus onto others. What you give is what you get. You cannot offer mercy to anyone else unless you first receive mercy. You can't receive the mercy of God, not because you deserve it. You can, sorry, receive it, but not because you deserve it, but because simply he loves to give it to us. Jesus took the penalty. Justice is served. Jesus paid the price. Now mercy flows. There is a word that is much used and abused in our day. It's the word pure. 
we are increasingly concerned with purity. We want to drink pure water. We want to breathe pure air. We want to eat pure foods. The government of Canada realized this, and in the Food and Drug Act, they stated that pure should not be used on the labels of or in the connection with an article that is a compound, mixture, imitation, or substitute. And this they did. Would you believe that they removed that law from the books in 1952? No such regulation exists today. There is no law on the books governing the use of the word pure. As important as clean air and pure water and pure food are, there's a sense of purity we tend to overlook. Jesus said, blessed or favored by God are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Your heart beats an average of 122,400 times a day. None of us want our heart to ask for a vacation or take a day off. We don't even want it to take a short coffee break to skip a few beats. The heart is critically important to our physical well-being. The same principle holds true to our spiritual lives. The condition of our heart impacts every area of our lives. It's the center of our innermost emotions, our passions, our motivations, our soul. Just as, as a body is lifeless without the beating of the heart, the same holds true spiritually speaking. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what a person is truly like on the inside, look at the things that flow out of their hearts. When God looks at you, he pays little attention to your outward appearance. Some of us, unlike me, have to work extremely hard on our outward appearance. Let that sink in for a moment. God cares intensely about what's going on on the inside of you. What's going on in your heart? Which brings us to pure in heart? What does pure in heart mean? Pure, translated in the Greek, means free from dirt, unsoiled. It means no impurities, such as pure water or pure gold. Genuine as opposed to false. Pure in heart means that your motives and actions are true. What you see is what you get. You don't say one thing and act another way. In your dealings with God and man, you're free from falsehood, utterly transparent, utterly sincere. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Is it possible to do good things with the wrong motive? Absolutely. Is it possible to be outwardly religious and inwardly a mess? Sure. Jesus is saying favor from God comes when you're the same on the inside as on the outside because God is concerned with why we do things as much as he's concerned with what we do. To Jesus, this was important. It's so important that he spends most of his time in the Sermon on the Mount on matters of the heart. Purity is that important. How important is a pure heart to you? A pure heart isn't, isn't believing the right things. It isn't going through the right motions. It's doing the right things with the right heart. It's asking yourself before you do something, what will God think of this? Is there consistency between what I say, I believe, and how I act? If we praise God with our lips and lift our hands in worship on Sunday morning and then act as though we never met him on Monday, then we're hypocrites. And Jesus often confronted them with, with uh, very stern warnings and words. Purity of heart isn't just the absence of corruption in our life. It's the fullness of God in his spirit in us. It's the very presence of God in you. It begins with the shedding of pretense and masks, an absolute inner awareness of who you really are. The process of purity begins when we understand fully who we really are. We're sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. We're a soul that needs to be redeemed by God's love. A life that needs to be clean, filled with the very presence of God. 
The second thing is we need to remember that God sees everything. The key phrase in Matthew 6 that occurs a number of times is your father sees what is done in secret. Nothing is secret from God. Nothing is ever a surprise to him. A lot of people think they're fooling God, but you can't fake out God. And we need to review our motives. Do an honest evaluation of why you do what you do. All a person's ways seem to be pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Why do we do something why we do something is as important as what we do. Jesus gives us three examples in his sermon. The first is giving. So when you give, do not announce it with trumpets and as hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. He says, if you give, you shouldn't give in order to be seen by other people. I know some people who are very generous, but they have one string attached. They want their name put on the side of the building or whatever it is. Second, praying. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Here we go again. Same kind of thing. Don't, simply put, don't try to impress others when you pray. Don't use it to make yourself look good. Jesus says, some were impressed and they got their reward. Thirdly, fasting. When you fast, don't look somber as hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. They walk around, in other words, holding onto their stomach and, and moaning and groaning. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full as well. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious. What's the point of all these things? Jesus is saying the point of pure in heart is you keep a secret. You keep it a secret when you do good, when you give, when you fast. If you can't, maybe your motives are suspect. Maybe you want the praise of men more than you want the praise of God. What's the result? Well, this is fabulous promise. They will see God. The result of an unmixed motive of living for God, no matter what it is, you, what it is, you get to see God. You get to see God in your life. You get to see God in your circumstances. You get to see God finally in heaven. Just as you don't see too well with dirty glasses, you don't see God too well with an impure heart. So how do you clean up your heart? The answer is you can't. It's not on your own that you can do that. But I happen to know a heart specialist. His name is Dr. Jesus. He makes house calls. He comes at no cost. He already has given all that he needs to give in order for you to be healed in this. You can see God. You can have a heart that's happy. He's never lost a patient yet. Do what David did in Psalm 51. He had committed adultery and then had her husband killed. He was laid low as he saw himself in the mirror and he prayed, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. To get a clean heart, you have to ask God. You have to come before him. God wants to give you a brand new heart. He wants you to put your trust in him. It's simple. You ask for it. You ask for it. And he'll give you a new outlook, a new life, a new start, a new heart. What we need is not more religion. What we need is for Jesus himself to enter our lives. Fill us with himself. Reformat our heart drives. In all my experience as a pastor, no real relationship has ever set out with the intent to set up already for a breakdown. No couple that I've ever married has said to me at the outset, we're not really in love. We're not doing the death till us part thing. Every mom and dad I've ever known who've driven home from the hospital with a newborn are dedicated to the core of their beings to building a strong, loving family. Every relationship that's worth its salt starts out with every good intention, but then life happens. 
the pressures, the fears, the disillusionment, the selfishness. Harsh words are said and promises that were made get broken and trust gets undermined and feelings get hurt and confidences get betrayed and seductions occur and money is mishandled and affection is withheld and tempers aren't tempered anymore and the unity that God so desires gets trampled on. Conflict happens, which brings us to the second to last beatitude. Blessed or favored by God are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus teaches here and elsewhere that the choices we make determine the future of all of our relationships. Each time we bump noses, whether it be with our spouses, someone else in our family, our friends, our co-workers, every time there's a hint of relational breakdown starting to occur, we arrive at a very important relational intersection. We're going to choose basically one of two paths, the path of appease or the path of of peace, and they lead to totally different destinations. Now, there is something you need to know about the first path, the path to appease. When you first start down it, it feels like the path of common sense. It feels like the path of conventional wisdom. It's a no-brainer path, and it almost immediately leads to the first marker on that path. It's avoidance, pulling away, stepping back, getting some distance in, you're a little hurt, you're a little disappointed. Add to that a cup full of self-righteousness and it makes sense for you to hole up somewhere until the dust settles. This is one of the most universal reactions to the first sign of friction in any relationship. Pull back, protect, avoid. It's standard operating procedure pretty much across all relational lines around the world. This is not peacemaking, this is cowardice. None of us like conflict, but avoidance only makes it worse. Then mix in a little rejection that the other one is feeling as they avoid each other and you come to the next marker on the relational road to trouble, selfishness. We start thinking of ourselves. I'm in pain. I'm not valued like I should be. I'm not having my needs met. They're just using me. And common sense says when there is, where there is smoke, there is fire. So we move into the final stages of establishing the last road marker on the road to appease, and that's resentment. And then the gloves are off. All niceties are gone, and now it's quite acceptable to let everyone know how this dirty dog has done you wrong. You give yourself permission to think pretty ugly thoughts because they're justified. Two big problems. The Bible says you cannot have close fellowship with God and be out of fellowship with other people at the same time. John says, how can a man say I love God and hate his brother or sister at the same time? Proverbs says, before everyone, there lies a wide and pleasant road that seems right but ends in death. You will eventually wind up at the end of the road alone and angry with a serious case of the disease that the Bible dreads most in relationships the disease of a hardened heart, the closing of your spirit, the absence of openness. Now, this is not God's plan. There is another way. It's a much harder way. It's called the path to peace or path to a peace, the road less traveled. Jesus says, I have another path for you to choose, and he would call it the narrow way, the tougher path that takes a lot more courage to walk down. Fewer people choose it, but those who do are richly rewarded. 
using this imagery whenever a relationship begins to break down, when there's that first heartbreak or hard words or hurt feelings or white lie exposed, and you get to that relational intersection where choices are made, the road less traveled would say, reject your reflex to run, reject the reflex to avoid. In fact, do just the opposite. Pursue them. Pursue the relationship. Move towards that spouse that said a hurtful thing. Move towards that child that just frustrated you for the hundredth time today. Press on towards that parent who just didn't listen to you when you tried so hard to communicate. The Bible teaches that the reflexive reflexive reaction to the beginning of a relational breakdown should be quick. Let's get together and talk things over and work things out so that we don't have to give back one penny's worth of the relational capital that we have invested in each other. Lots of passages in the Bible talk about this. One Jesus mentions just minutes later in the sermon. As he continues in this sermon he's giving, he makes this point so strongly that he says, if there's a relational breakdown happening and it comes to mind when you're in a church service, get up and walk out. Whatever the pastor's talking about, whatever the singer's singing about is not as critical as you going right away to try to fight for that relationship. It's one of the most graphic and dramatic teaching expressions that Jesus ever used. The Bible says with just great emphasis, these matters are so urgent, drop everything in order to take care of it. Move toward one another at the first sign of trouble. Secondly, emphasize, empathize with their feelings. Philippians 2.4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word in Greek for look here is the word scopus, from which we get the word scope. It literally means scope out the other person's needs. Scope out why they're hurting. Why is this so important to them? What can I do to help them? Attack the problem, not the person. You can't focus on fixing the problem and fixing the blame at the same time. It's impossible. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Engage your mind before you engage your mouth. Be sincere, not sarcastic. You don't get the point across by being cross. Attack the problem, not the person. Fourthly, cooperate. Be a bridge builder. What can we agree on in this conflict? How do we work together to work through this conflict? Romans 12 says, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. You should be known for your ability to get along with other people. Are you? Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Peace always has a price, you see. It costs your self-centeredness. It costs your selfishness. And then fifthly, emphasize reconciliation. Reestablish the relationship. It doesn't mean you resolve all the problems. Focus on reconciliation of the relationship instead. And quite often, all the other stuff will fall into place. Or the issue becomes immaterial. Or at least now you're approaching as a team once more. Who can be a peacemaker? Well, you can Anybody can become a peacemaker, but first you must have peace inside of you. Do you hear this just theme recurring over and over and over in the Beatitudes? First, to do that, you must have it inside of you. You can spread peace if you have peace. You can't spread peace if you're at war on the inside. Only what you have is what you have to offer. When you've been reconciled with God, when you have that in your life, then you can become a reconciler, a peacemaker, a disciple maker. 
when you help restore relationships, you're doing exactly what God would do. Whenever one of my boys does something I'm proud of, I say, he's just like his father. Whenever one of my boys does something I'm embarrassed by, Jennifer says, he's just like his father. <laughs> Either way, they're just like me. Jesus says, there's one thing you can always know when we're like our heavenly father. When God looks down on you and you're taking the initiative to restore harmony in any relationship, when you're doing that, God looks down on you and says, did you see that? That's my girl. That's my boy. They're just like their father. And they will be called children of God. Jesus was very honest about the consequences of following him. He said, if you follow me, there are those who aren't going to approve of your decision. If you live by these beatitudes, you can expect some people to be upset with you. So in his closing statement, Jesus says, Blessed or favored by God are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of, God, of, of heaven. The statement is so shocking, it's the only time he goes on to reword it and repeat a beatitude. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus gives more space to this last beatitude than any of the others, and he personalizes it. This is the only beatitude in the second part where he says, you, up until then it's been sort of impersonal. Blessed are those, blessed are those. Blessed are you, he says. While all the others deal with the character of the individual, this one deals with the character of the world around us and how it treats people who have the other seven Beatitudes at play, working, operative in their life. He says, favored by God are those who handle rejection. He says, favored by God are those whose beliefs are so strong that they can withstand any attack. I want us to look at how we respond to persecution, but before we do, there's a few things we need to get straight and I want you first to notice the reality of it. It's going to happen. Notice Jesus doesn't say, if you're persecuted, if you're insulted, but when. Be prepared. Don't be caught off guard. As the world gets more and more off track, it's getting more and more hostile to morality, to goodness, to people who follow after Christ. I, this should not be a surprise to us anymore. It's the reality it was certainly to be the reality for the disciples who were listening on the hillside to Jesus that day. Peter speaks from personal experience when he later quotes this beatitude, not once, but twice. We've got to step aside here as we have in our other beatitudes and look exactly at what is meant by Jesus' statement. For by far, this is the beatitude that is most often misunderstood and misapplied. And bear with me right through it. It is absolutely crucial to be able to answer this question correctly. For what is the follower of Christ persecuted? For what? This goes to the very heart of what Jesus is teaching. The answer lies in two phrases, because of righteousness and in the parallel phrase in the following verse, because of me. This beatitude does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted, as though enduring any persecution at any time and for any reason makes you favored by God. It says rather persecuted because of righteousness, or as we might say it, favored by God are you who are persecuted because by God's grace you have determined to live as Jesus lived. There is no promise of blessing for those who are persecuted for being a nuisance, for Christ followers who have shown themselves to be objectionable, difficult, foolish, insulting to their non-Christian friends. 
and have felt pushback because of that. Similarly, it's not persecution when we're snubbed for pushing religious material onto people who don't want it or by getting involved in a religious argument with them. That's not persecution. Nor, of course, does it mean blessed are those who are persecuted for wrongdoing. This should go without saying, but some will always attempt to justify a wrongful act by loud cries of unjustified persecution or prejudice. Peter wrote, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal. And then he even adds this, or even as a meddler. Jesus is not talking about being persecuted for being objectionable, persecuted for doing wrong, persecuted for being fanatical or endorsing some cause other than the simple cause of Christ. The fact is, the reason for persecution is, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The right reason for persecution is simply being like Jesus. The fact is, the reason for persecution is that and that alone. When Jesus came into the world in his righteousness, he exposed the evil in the world at every turn. And people hated him for it. Before he came, people would get away with hypocrisy, lying, dishonesty, selfishness, lust, greed, and a long list of other vices, a lot of them hidden within the heart. But after Jesus came, all these vices were revealed for what they were, and people hated the exposing of their inner hearts and natures, and they killed Jesus for it. The world, I'm sad to say, has not changed one bit. They still hate any exposure of their evil nature that comes from the evidences of his righteousness displayed in his followers. Not one to beat around the bush. Jesus just gives it to us straight. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. That's the why. But how do we respond? How do we handle being persecuted for our faith? Well, first recognize the source. In Ephesians 6, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We sometimes labor, and I know this seems hard to believe for some, but I've run into people who take this on. We sometimes labor under the mistaken impression that we ourselves are not really in a war. Hear me in this. The devil does not play fair. The devil is not some rival in a nice little organized tennis match where there's rules and where there's fouls and so on. He does not, will not, and has no intention of abiding by any rules in this contest. He does not play fair. Secondly, we must refuse to retaliate. And this is hard. Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. He says, there will be insults when people try to dishonor you or discredit you or say derogatory things about you, that there is persecution, mistreatment, and to tell lies about you, deceit and deception. Jesus experienced all of these, but he refused to retaliate. And you must also. Thirdly, respond positively. Romans 12 says, do not be, do not, when it says, do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, that should be our reaction too. Is that your normal reaction when you're put down or you're mistreated? You never get ahead, you see, by getting even. Once you start reacting, who's in control? The person who started it. So how do you respond positively? Matthew 5, Jesus continues, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is that easy? No. Is that what Jesus has to do? Yes. He says, don't react 
Respond positively. When people put you down, you build them up. When people mistreat you, you be nice to them. If anyone forces you to go one mile, you go with them too. You do not retaliate. The moment you start re retaliating, you put them solidly in control. One of the greatest principles of life that we need to learn is we cannot control the things that happen to us. We cannot control the things that people say about us, but we can control how we choose to respond. What happens to us is not the most important thing in your life. What happens in us is what matters most. This is the choice. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this, with every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the followers of Christ and other people, and their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. To be a disciple means refusing to be in tune with the world or to accommodate oneself to its standards. It's what Jesus has been teaching all along. The ways of God appear nonsensical to men, for God exalts the humble and lowers the proud. He calls the first last and the last first. He ascribes greatness to the servant. He sends the rich away empty-handed and declares the meek will be the heirs of the kingdom. The Bible says consistently that true disciples of Jesus will be persecuted, an inevitable consequence of our Jesus character conflicting with the values of the world. There is persecution here to be sure. Racial, ethnical, even political, but persecution because of righteousness? Not so much yet. So what's wrong? Are we not emulating Christ's character enough that's resulting in more persecution? We can certainly know, though, that it's coming. On a personal level, what is your faith costing you? In the much of the world, it's costing people their, their very lives. It costs Jesus his. What's your faith costing you? What do the Beatitudes mean to you personally? The people who heard Jesus on the mount were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Have you thought about this? It's significant that when Jesus had finished the greatest sermon in history, his audience seemed more impressed with his authority than with the content of his sermon. This might seem odd, but for, but for the fact that this was not some ordinary teacher, some ordinary preacher like anyone else you would care to listen to ever. The Sermon on the Mount, like all scripture, points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The preacher of the Sermon on the Mount is the Sermon on the Mount. His very words are meant to draw us into intimate contact with him. The message is Jesus who taught as not one before or since and who lived each word out perfectly and who then died and rose again to offer us full and perfect salvation. If you will believe in him and follow him as his disciple, he will make you salt of the earth, light in this ever-darkening world. He will give you the Holy Spirit to be your guide in scripture and life and he will teach you to pray and carry you through all the trials of this life and on into eternity. And there... We will join with all the saints in praise and adoration of our Lord and King and shout for joy, shout for joy with all that we have. We are blessed. We are blessed. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to read the Beatitudes to you. And I just want to, this is our benediction. This is our reflection. I'm just going to read them over you and I'm going to change the words to be ours Kind of like what Jesus did in the second part of that last beatitude. So would you just let these words flow over you as we conclude? Blessed 
are we who are poor in spirit, for ours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are we who mourn our sin, for we will be comforted. Blessed are we who are meek, for we have been given the amazing privilege of inheriting the earth. Blessed are we who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for we will be filled. Blessed are we who are merciful, for we will be shown mercy. And blessed are we who are pure in heart, for we will see God. What a blessing. Blessed are us peacemakers, for we will be called children of God. We'll be just like our dad. Blessed are we who are persecuted because of righteousness, for ours is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are we when people insult us, persecute us, falsely say all kinds of evil against us because of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, because great is our reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before us. O Father, O Father, may these blessings rest on us. And may they be attitudes that we live out before you each and every day, our heart and our prayer before you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed and shouted, Amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204 204- 326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.